Please open your Bibles to the sixth chapter of Second Chronicles. Our study tonight will be verses 1 to 11. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well. You did well in what was in your heart. Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have set the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for these events so long ago, and yet it's all part of our story, our story in your Son. Oh, Father, would you help us to see uh, the glory of your dwelling in the midst of your people, and that Son who has built a house for your name. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Seven weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus, something astonishing happened in Jerusalem. In the upper room where the disciples had been meeting, the band of believers heard a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Acts chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. And then they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Since it was one of the feast weeks, Jerusalem was filled with devout pilgrims. And as they they saw and heard what had happened, all were amazed and perplexed, saying one to another, what does this mean? Acts 2, verse 12. Well, the apostle Peter turned to the crowd and explained that Jerusalem had just witnessed the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Acts 2.17. Now little did Peter, that humble fisherman, imagine that he was on that day fulfilling a role, playing a role that had earlier been filled by Solomon, who after all was the greatest and most glorious king of ancient Israel. For when Solomon had completed his temple and he brought the ark up into the temple, God likewise provided a supernatural display of his presence. 
Second Chronicles 5, 13 to 14 says, The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Well, Second Chronicles 6, 1 to 11 records how, just like at Pentecost, the people needed an explanation of the remarkable thing that had taken place. And in giving them an answer, Solomon gives a theology lesson with a message that actually points forward to what later would occur at Pentecost. Like Peter, Solomon proclaimed a gospel message of good news, and like all good sermons, it had three points. And he noted three things. First, that God, what good news this is, that God desires that he would dwell in the midst of his people. And that secondly, God chose where and with whom he would dwell. And thirdly, that God has appointed a son to prepare for him a place in which to dwell. The glory cloud of Solomon's day pointed to the Lord himself dwelling in his temple. But you see, when in the course of time, the message that begins here was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, it would be in Peter's day into the lives of the people themselves that the glory of God would descend by his Holy Spirit. Well, the record of 2 Chronicles, which so closely follows the parallel account in 1 Kings 8, 12 to 21, these accounts are virtually, not absolutely, but virtually identical. And this record tells us that Solomon had constructed a platform on which to stand, and he located it near the altar in the courtyard of the temple. And from that vantage point, he saw the glory cloud descend. The Jews called it the Shekinah glory, uh, Shakan being the verb for to dwell, the dwelling glory cloud of God. And it descended and it filled the temple. And his first response, we find, very appropriately, was that he spoke to God himself. He celebrated what had happened. Verses 1 to 2, then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Now Solomon noted that characteristically God abides, he says, in thick darkness. Now that refers to the glory cloud that was before him. And we learn in the previous records when the glory had appeared earlier, primarily during the Exodus, uh, that it appeared as a cloud of darkness on the outside with burning light inside. Exodus 14, 19 to 20 gives that description. And so it would appear as dark, thick smoke on the outside, but it was evident that a burning fire was blazing within. That, that is the manner, by the way, in which during the Exodus journey in the desert, it served the dual function of giving them shade by day and then a light by night. Now, when they got to Mount Sinai, the same vision appeared there. Deuteronomy 4.11, the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. In this way, the glory cloud depicted the majestic incomprehensibility of God. We always have to remember that while God tells us things about himself and the things that he tells us about himself are true, God himself is beyond our comprehension. It must be that way. And although he was present with his people, he himself could not be seen. They could see a light shining through the dark cloud. And that cloud of darkness, by the way, 
just like the most holy place where the ark had been put. The most holy place was the room where no one could go in. You knew it was there, but there was the veil blocking it. It also depicted the holiness of God that separated his glory from the eyes of sinful men. God had told Moses when he asked to see God's glory in Exodus 33, no man can see my glory lest he should die. Well, because God characteristically dwells in darkness, Solomon expresses thanksgiving. He's grateful that God has appeared because God's appearing confirmed that it is God's will that he would dwell in the midst of his people. How remarkable, given the kind of God he just said that he is. He's a transcendent God. He's beyond our comprehension. He's a holy God. He, he can't be in the midst of sinful people like us. And yet, the point of the coming of this glory cloud, that it was God's desire that he would dwell in the midst of his people. Verse 2, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. You see, Solomon had built the house and God had come. What a marvel of condescension and grace. Now Solomon describes his temple as an exalted house built for God. Now normally the word for exalted means something high and lifted up, something that's high above others. Mountains would be called exalted, lofty in this sense. Now that's only fitting for God. But it also describes the magnificence of the temple all overlaid in gold. And Solomon had engaged in this labor for the blessing and the glory of God. He'd done it in obedience to God's word. And in response, God had come there to dwell. In this way, Solomon represented Christ. Jesus, at the end of his life, was able to say, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And it was on the basis of him doing God's work in God's way, fulfilling God's word, that Jesus then was able to pray that God would take his people into his care. Well, here then is Solomon's gospel message of good news declared in the very presence of the glory of the Lord that had appeared. God desires to dwell in the midst of his people. What a remarkable thing that is. By the way, that's the very reason why Jesus was born, why the Son of God became incarnate as a man. We hear an echo of Solomon's language and the whole pattern of the tabernacle and temple when John writes in the prologue of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. Well, now that Christ has built his church as God's true temple, It is in each believer that God comes to dwell, and he dwells by his Holy Spirit. That is why at Pentecost, the disciples did not see the Shekinah glory cloud, one cloud coming down in glory. They saw tongues of flame, and each flame rested on each of the disciples. Divided tongues of fire rested on each one of them. Acts 2, verse 3. Solomon had ceremonially consecrated the temple with the sacrifices of bulls and sheep that he and oxen that he'd made and the glory cloud came but you see christ has truly cleansed his people once for all he has washed us in his blood and so now what solomon saw is fulfilled the glory descends and rests on us and in each believer through the indwelling holy spirit 
Well, the idea of God desiring to dwell within with his people plays a major role in the New Testament doctrine of sanctification. Now, Paul uses this te- teaching, this truth, to urge Christians to abstain from sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19, he, he uses this way of thinking to tell us to abstain from sexual sin. Flee from sexual immorality, he said. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You see the logic. God has come to dwell in us. Christ has cleansed us. God, the holy God, is in us. We are not therefore to be used in the ways of sin. Now, Peter speaks more generally in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He describes Christians as a spiritual house for God made of living stones. And he urges us on that basis to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. 1 Peter 2.11 well, what a wonderful, remarkable blessing that God desires to dwell in our hearts since we've been cleansed and consecrated by the greater Solomon who is Christ through his own blood. Let us honor God as the holy and exalted guest who has been gracious to dwell in redeemed sinners like us. Well, having spoken with wonder to God as he appeared in such visible glory, Solomon then turned and he addressed the people. Not at all unlike the way that Peter on Pentecost turned and addressed the wondering people of Jerusalem. We read in verse 3, Therefore the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. We remember from the previous chapter that all the tribal chiefs were there. All the elders of Israel were there. They were representing all the people of Israel. Although I dare say a large crowd of the people themselves would also have gathered. And and the nation as a whole was representatively there. Undoubtedly, many people in Jerusalem were marveling at the cloud of glory. And it's notable that while Solomon taught them God's word, that's what he does, He's going to use the word of God to teach them the understanding of what has happened. He's going to give them a sermon. I think it's interesting that the way when he does that, the way the chronicler describes the preaching of God's word is that he blessed the assembly. Reminds us that the greatest blessing is to hear the Bible preached. His first words in that sermon were, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, reminding us that our greatest blessing is found in giving praise to God through his word in his worship. Well, Solomon had two points that he made in explaining what had just happened. First, His first point was talking to God, marveling that this holy God desired to dwell amidst his people. But turning to the people, he first tells them that God had appeared because he had chosen Jerusalem as the place where he would dwell and the house of David to provide his temple-building servant. Why had God come? Solomon had built a temple. God had actually come in supernatural blessing. The reason was because God had chosen that place and that temple builder, and it was for that reason that he came. And for that reason, Solomon praised God's faithfulness, verse 4, who, was, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father. 
Now, these words not only bless the Lord before his people, the people in Solomon's day were blessed, but we always need to remember that we're not only hearing and reading what happened in the time of Solomon, we're also reading what the chronicler wrote to his generation. It would have been a blessing for the people of Jerusalem in Solomon's day to hear, God is here because he chose this city and the house of David. But the people who read Second Chronicles might have been even more blessed by that. Remember, they lived after Solomon's temple had been destroyed because of sin. And they had endured a long, hard exile in Babylon. And they had returned and they had built a new temple. Remember, the opening chapter would tell us that Chronicles was written, oh, a generation or so after Zechariah and Zerubbabel when the second temple had been built. And Ezra, chapter 3, verse 2, tells us that when the audience, the people of the chroniclers, when that generation had come back from Babylon and they actually had built a second temple, the one Solomon built, had long been destroyed. They built another one, but there were present on that occasion some of the men who were priests and Levites and elders of the people who were old enough that they had actually seen the original one. It was a 70-year exile, so these are pretty old priests, but they they were present for the second temple built by Zerubbabel, and, uh, but they had seen the original one of Solomon, and, and while the people were shouting with excitement and praise for the temple they had built, the old men were weeping because it paled in comparison to the glory. It was a lesser temple that they had been able to build in their days. But you see, the chronicler is saying to them as he records God's promise that I will be there because I chose Jerusalem. I will dwell there because I chose the house of David. And that meant what mattered was not the work of our hands. What really mattered was not the splendor of the temple they'd been able to build, but the will of God, the election of God. Even their lesser temple was chosen by God. It was by his sovereign grace, his sovereign election that he would dwell in their temple as well well verse 4 says that God with his hand has fulfilled what he promised now that language that anthropomorphism God with his hand has fulfilled what he promised is Solomon's way of saying it wasn't actually me who built the temple it was God he's speaking this way about God's providence God had been providentially involved it was actually his personal investment his personal involvement that caused this work to be completed likewise for the chronicler's generation the same is true for our generation what God promises he accomplishes by his own hand I think of some of the promises in the New Testament. 2 Peter 1.4 says, God has given us his precious and very great promises, not least of which is the forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus. And the reason we can trust God's promises all to come true is that he is faithful to fulfill them with his own mighty hand. But not only was God's hand involved in his promise, his mouth also spoke them to his servants. Now Solomon has in mind the promise that God gave to his father of a house that his son would build. Now, he records that promise in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 12. This is known as the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. God's mouth had said to David, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your father, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will accomplish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me. 
Well, now on the words of Martin Selman, God has fulfilled with his hands what he promised with his mouth. Now, Solomon works out two ways in which God was faithful. And again, both of these deal with God's sovereign choosing. First, he chose Jerusalem as the place where his name would dwell. Second Chronicles 6.5 says, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. Now, Solomon is recounting words that come from the time of Moses. And God had revealed that there actually would be a place where his name would dwell. God would choose a place, but he would not reveal that place until they had conquered the land. That had now been done. Now the place where God chose to dwell had been made known. And the place that is given, God says, this temple, I'm going to be there because it's the place I chose for my name to be known. His name, of course, reflects his character, his will, his his person and works. And the fact that he said, the place I've chosen is Jerusalem. When we remember the things that had happened in Jerusalem, it tells us about the character of the name that God would reveal. And of course, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, was known as Mount Moriah. And that is the place where, in Genesis 22, God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And when Abraham was ready to do that, God stopped him from sacrificing his son. And God provided a a ram who was caught in the thicket. The the place that God says, I chose this place to reveal my name, it was the place of which Abraham said, the Lord will provide. Speaking of an atoning sacrifice that his son would not die for his sins. Tremper Longman comments, in other words, this is a location where God provided the substitute ram for the sacrifice of Abraham's long-appointed son, long-awaited son. You see, God chose Jerusalem, not randomly. It wasn't eeny, meeny, miny, mo, looking at a map, just waiting and putting a pin on the map and seeing it was following. God had prepared their understanding of what he would mean when he built the temple on this place. God chose Jerusalem because it was there that what God had promised in the time of Abraham, it would be accomplished in the day of Jesus Christ. This is the place ultimately foreseen by Abraham where Jesus Christ would die for our sins. And likewise, the place on Mount Moriah where the temple was built, the very specific spot, is also known. It is where David had offered a sacrifice so that Jerusalem would be spared God's wrath for his sin. 1 Chronicles 21.15 says that it was there at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite that David was confronted by an angel with a drawn sword. 1 Chronicles 21.26 says David built there at that spot an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Now the connection therefore to Solomon's day is striking. Solomon is standing on a platform next to the altar of sacrifices he had built and then the Lord had descended with fire from heaven as he did in the time of David to reveal his presence. God said the place was chosen that my name might be there. The revelation of his character and his ways would be displayed by the place where he would dwell with his people. 
You see, what God is saying is that I will meet with you through salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, by the blood of the Lamb who would be, who would be slain. That is how and where God reveals himself. The Temple Mount was the single place on the planet Earth in that time most associated with the atoning blood of the Lamb of God who would come, the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. And by God's sovereign choice, it was here where the cross would be set up and the Son of God, fulfilling all of this symbolism, the Son of God would be slain. He says, this is the place where I have chosen to meet with you. You know, people say the question, why must I be saved this way? Why is it faith in Jesus? Why is, why is it believing in Jesus' blood upon the cross? Why is that the place where I meet with God to know him and worship him? The answer is by God's sovereign will and election. Because this is the way that reveals his name. If you want to know the true and living God, if you want to worship a false God, then by all means, there's other ways. But the true God, the living God, is the God of grace. Isn't that wonderful? The God of grace who says, I will meet you at the place where the blood of Jesus was shed. God reveals himself where justice and mercy kissed at the cross of Christ, where sin is judged in a way that forgiveness is extended to those who believe. If you want to know his name, if you want to worship him, There is no other place for you to stand than in the sin-atoning mercy of the cross. And the second promise God fulfilled in Solomon's temple then pertained to the royal house. God chooses where he will worship, but also with whom he will worship. I have chosen David to be over my people Israel, verse 6. As Jerusalem was the place where Jesus would die, so also it was into the line of David that he would be born. It was Jesus the righteous, the Lamb of God, who died for our sins, who was able to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. God has chosen that if you would know him and you would have God dwell within you, if your sins would be forgiven by his grace, you will know him at the cross of Calvary in the line of David through Jesus Christ, God's son of that house. Now, this same principle of God electing his people continues today. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You, you see, when we realize that we have been chosen by God through sovereign election, by grace alone, with no merit of our own to commend us, well, then those who believe realize that we are to consecrate our lives so that God's name would be seen in us, that God's glory would dwell among us. Now, I want to go back to the original readers of 2 Chronicles and this reminder that God chose Jerusalem. God chose the house of David for his temple and the enormous encouragement it would be to them. Again, their work was humanly not very impressive, certainly not compared to the great structures of Babylon and pagan cities in Egypt and other places. And yet God would dwell in this temple. God would bless this people. Why? By sovereign election, according to his word, because he had chosen Jerusalem to make his name known. Likewise, we think of poor Zerubbabel, 
Hope you know who Zerubbabel is. Read the prophet Zechariah and you'll meet him. He's the princeling of the line of David and, and after the Babylonian exile when their house has been stripped of glory and dignity and power. You talk about a lesser son. And this is no glorious David or Solomon, but, but he is of the house that God appointed. And you see, even when it's poor old Zerubbabel and he is the one who lays the temple stone in the place that God has appointed, God says, that's where I'm going to reveal myself. According to his word, by his sovereign election, they were the Zerubbabel and his heirs were sons of the covenant line. And just as we are sons of God in Christ. And God chose that place and that person to build a temple where he would dwell. They were doing God's work in God's way. And they were saying, oh, they were flawed. They were weak. Don't you feel that way? We don't seem all that impressive. We don't seem to be pushing back the tide of darkness. I I certainly am not going to make such claims for myself. But you see, when we're doing the work God has appointed us to do, when we're acting according to God's sovereign will, in God's sovereign choosing, he will be there. He will be redeeming. He will be revealing himself, and sinners will be saved. What confidence then belongs to the followers of Jesus solely based on God's sovereign election and covenant faithfulness. God has chosen to dwell with those who believe in the greatest son of the line of David. And he has promised to bless the temple that Jesus has built, namely his people. And therefore, in Christ, we will find, like Solomon, that everything that God has promised will be true. Cyril Barber comments, he has been faithful in fulfilling his promise to David. He has been faithful in helping Solomon with all the details of the temple's building. He has fulfilled his word by selecting Jerusalem as the place for his name. He will fulfill his promises to you. They will come true. God will glorify his name in faithfulness to us because we are chosen in Christ and that Election is revealed by faith in his name and his gospel. All the promises God for uh, promises of God for us, they are going to be yes and amen, and they're going to be that way in Christ. Well, Solomon concludes his sermon about God's glory. This is what he wants them to know in light of the glory cloud descending upon the temple. And he concludes by explaining that the way that God fulfills his promises is by appointing a son to accomplish his work. Here's what Solomon's saying, marvel of marvel, this holy God, it's his will, it's his desire that he would dwell among us. What what a thing that is. And he's going to do so by sovereign election. It's going to be his faithfulness to what he has willed that accomplishes his purposes and promises and the way he is going to do it is by appointing a son to accomplish the will of his father you know I I always still feel like a son I never want to not feel like a son when I was a boy and I praise God for this the greatest thing that could be said to me was by my father to say well done son you have done your duty I suppose that reflects the military background in which I was raised but my father to say well done you son have done your duty was the highest thing and it was my heart's aspiration as a son I never want to stop having that attitude and it is the highest accolade a son can do have that he fulfills the will of a loving father so it was with the temple God had made 
in which God condescended to dwell. Now, the chronicler tells us what was the will of Solomon's father. We see this in verse 7. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And that's all recorded in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 17.1 is where David says to the prophet Nathan, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. You see, David's piety was motivating him to give proper glory to God, and he wanted to build a, a structure that would be appropriate to the God who he was. And his godly desire was approved. And, and Nathan reasoned, he responded with sound reasoning. Nathan said, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But the problem is that Nathan spoke too soon. He forgot to wait for the word of the Lord. It made sense to him, and he's a godly man. He's an experienced prophet. He's an excellent prophet. It seemed like, hey, that's, that's a godly thing. It's right. You should do it. But that was not God's will. God had other plans. Solomon goes on and explains, but the Lord said to my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build the house, Second Chronicles 6, 8 to 9. Now, it's very clear that David was not disqualified because he lacked faith. Rather, it was because David had lived as a man of war. And for that reason, his hands were not suitable to build God's temple. First Chronicles 22, 8 records what God said to him. You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. Therefore, you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Now, Tremper Longman explains that the prohibition was not ethical. Well, there's something wrong with David. It was redemptive historical, namely that the temple represented God's peace. It represented the secession of battles, of conquest. It symbolized the, the, the settlement and establishment of the land. David was the conquest completer. He defeated the last inhabitants, inhabitants of the land, primarily the Philistines. As the completer of the contest, con- conquest, it was not him who would build the temple. Well, David was told that while he would not build God's temple, his son Solomon would. We see this in verse 9. Solomon recounts the earlier scripture. It is not you who shall build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now, this is why Solomon's name was not chosen randomly. We have a few pregnant moms in the congregation. I always advise couples about to have a children not to tell people what they're planning to name their child. If, if you don't want their opinion, don't tell them what it is until the child has arrived. Then they have to like it. But uh, if you're going to, what, what's the, the Isaiah name that I keep wanting someone to name a child? Bear, Shabul, Ratnahaz, it hasn't happened yet. I wouldn't recommend it, but if that's what you choose, don't ask people what they think about it in advance. Just tell them after the fact. But that's not how it is with people like Solomon. His name is given to him by God himself. First Chronicles 22, 9 to 10. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his, name, his days. He shall build a house for my name. Now you may realize that the letters, the consonants in Solomon's name are the same consonants in the Hebrew word shalom. His name speaks of peace. And the temple symbolized the rest of God's peace. And so the, the son whose name means peace would be chosen to build the house of God. 
When Solomon had built the house, God therefore was pleased to dwell in it. Well, the same principle we see in Solomon's appointment as the son who would do the will of his father. Of course, I hope you're already racing ahead of me. and You're thinking, oh, this is pointing to Jesus. And you're right. He's the greater son. He's God's son, David's greatest heir. And he is the one, it is the son who will build the true house in which God would dwell. The son of God will accomplish the will of his heavenly father. You see this, for instance, in the first servant song of Isaiah, in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I will give you, he says to his son, you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of those who are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those sit in darkness. It is the beloved son who has the privilege of accomplishing what is in the father's heart. Well, and we've seen that the desire of God is that he would have a dwelling amidst his people. And this dwelling accomplished by the Son is the church. Our call to worship tonight was that those words from Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22, where Paul tells us the church and the people in it, not the institution, not the building, the church in a living corporate body. He says, you are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, it's the living structure of the people of God, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, if Solomon was a fitting temple builder with his name that meant peace, oh, how much more fitting was God's son, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9, 6 foretold him as the prince of peace. And Paul said of him, he himself is our peace. And Jesus offers the rest of God to all his people. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give with you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 14, 27. And Jesus gives us a true peace with God. And his spirit gives us the peace of God, the peace from God that removes our fear. And so it says our hearts rest on Christ in faith that God dwells in us in the rest of his peace. Now Solomon here, speaking of himself as the promised son who would fulfill his father David's desire, he goes on and says, now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. Talking about that temple with the Shekinah glory dwelling in it. For I have risen in the place of David my father, and I sit on the throne of Israel. As the Lord promised, I have built the house of the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I hope as I'm reading that you're thinking, that's what Jesus is going to say at the end of history. That's where this world is going. That's where all history is going. What a thrill that we are part of this. Sadly, some of the short-sighted biblical commentators accuse Solomon of being boastful. He's saying this to puff himself up because this is something that he had done. That, my friends, is missing the plot line. No, he is wanting to receive not his own glory for building a temple. He's not boasting about himself. He's glorying, glorifying a God whose hand has completed what his mouth declared. And he was establishing an expectation 
that just as he was the son who fulfilled the will of his father, so also God had a son, has a son, and he will accomplish eternally his holy will. Well, Jesus, you know, spoke in advance before he died. He spoke of his death and his resurrection, and he did so in terms of the tearing down of the old temple and the raising up of the new one. In that way, he would fulfill God's promise of an eternal place of dwelling. On one occasion in John 2, he'd cleansed the temple of money changers, and the people were mad, and they demanded to know by what authority Jesus would cleanse the temple. And here's what he answered. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John two nineteen, And they were astonished. They said, you know, it took 46 years for Herod to build the third temple. But John 2.21 says he was speaking about the temple of his body. And so it was that when Jesus on the cross cried out, it is finished. Primarily, we think of that as the atonement having been paid, the redemption price having been offered. But you see, it also meant the end of the old temple. That's why the, the veil in the temple, Mark tells us, was torn from top to bottom. He had torn down that temple. He had put to an end its provisional sacrifices. And then when the women came to the tomb and they found it empty, the angels told them, he is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day that he would rise. This is him raising it up. God had promised a true dwelling place, an eternal dwelling place built by his son. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's hand was faithful to complete the words of his mouth. Well, Solomon extols this faithfulness of God as he records his success as a type of Christ, the true son and temple builder. He says in the last two verses of our passage, For I have risen in the place of David my father. I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And I have set there the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with his people Israel. And of course the ark with its mercy seat where the sprinkled blood spoke of the forgiveness of sin on the annual day of atonement. It established a promise of a true son who would put away sin forever, who would build the dwelling place of God forever with his people. The promise that became true when Jesus offered his blood for our sins. I, I love the way the writer of Hebrews, who you know is using the temple imagery in constructing his theology. The application, what, what's the message to us from this? Speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews seven twenty four and 5, he says he holds his priesthood permanently because he lives forever consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him see that's the effect this son is able to save to the uttermost eternally those who draw near to God through him well as it fell to Solomon to explain the meaning of the glory cloud appearing at his temple. So it, it, it fell to Peter to tell the people what it meant when the Holy Spirit came upon that little church gathering in the upper room. And like Solomon, Peter explained the marvel of what they had witnessed in terms of God's promise to David. 
Here's what Peter says. David, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, same storyline as Solomon saying, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of this we are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Acts 2, 30 to 33. Well, if Solomon could rejoice that God had been faithful to his promises, how much more can we rejoice in the faithfulness of his great fulfillment that has come in the death and resurrection of Jesus And we can tell that God was faithful because he was using Peter. The effect of Peter's sermon was he was drawing believers into his temple to to build the temple. That's what was actually taking place in that Pentecost preaching. And Peter was being used to build that place where the name of God would be made known. We're told that those who heard him were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? And Peter answered with what is the greatest of all the promises it was this he said repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit Acts 2 38 well like the promise God fulfilled in Solomon David's son to build a house for his name this promise above all will be true what God has spoken he will fulfill this promise of your salvation your forgiveness the 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 spirit of god coming to dwell in you forever this will be true because he's faithful if you will repent and believe in jesus in the new life of the holy spirit whom god says you will echo the words of solomon in his praise you will be the one who says blessed be the lord the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled in me what his mouth has promised. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these outwardly difficult passages, but we see their relevance to us. And Father, help us to see that this temple of old was a pointer forward to what we're part of now. Uh, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, the temple that is the body of his church. And Father, we pray that we would believe you, we would trust you to do the work you've appointed for us to do. And we know that through it, a place of your dwelling is being built. We are that temple place. Oh, how we look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus when he will be able to speak entirely in the past tense. He will say, I have built the house. I have built it. And the glory of the Lord, we know, will be seen there, even in us, forever and ever. Oh, Lord, may our hearts burn within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.